turn in our Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 16. On Sunday morning, we're studying the book of Acts together, and we come to chapter 16 this morning. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. You just wave to them. They'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage for your convenience, and, and then if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, today. Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. And then he, that is Paul, accompanied with Silas, came to Derbe and Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted to have him go on with him on the missionary journey, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in the region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. And so the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for these five verses. We thank you that what is revealed to us about your heart and about your ways and our lives individually as Christians and then in the body of Christ as a whole. And we pray that you would freshly come upon us by your Holy Spirit and give us ears to hear what your Spirit would speak to each of us individually, speak to us as a church this morning from your Word. We pray for that work of your Spirit it means the world to us to hear your voice, to understand your will. We never want to take it for granted, and we pray that you would continue that work in our lives now, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I think that while many people can be inclined in reading the first five verses of Acts chapter 16 to think that it's merely this kind of accumulation of technical knowledge or transitional knowledge to, you know, placed within the chapter in order to uh, provide some context for all of the fireworks that are going to occur a little bit later in the chapter surrounding Paul's ministry in the city of Philippi. But I can guarantee you that if Paul were reading the first five verses of chapter 16, he wouldn't look at it that way at all. Because in this passage, it supplies us with the record of the start of one of the most important relationships in Paul's life, one of the most important relationships in his ministry and on a personal level as well, a relationship with a man by the name of Timothy. After Barnabas and his separation from Paul over the issue of John Mark, as we studied last week, the Apostle Paul chose Silas, a man named Silas, to now accompany him on his second missionary journey. The intent was to be able to uh, return to all of the churches that had been established on the first missionary journey and to make sure that they're doing okay, to see how uh, well they're uh, doing and the people that made up the churches. And the first cities that they came to, we're told in verse 1, were the cities of Derby and Lystra. 
And remember that it's probably been five years since Paul visited Lystra before on his first missionary journey. So they haven't seen his face in five years. They haven't heard his voice for five years. While in Lystra, verses 1 and 2, Paul came into contact with a young man by the name of Timothy. We're told that he was a disciple, that is, that he was a Christian. He was a learner, a follower of Jesus. That's what a disciple means. We're told further that he was the son of a Jewish mother who was also a believer, a Christian. We know from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, that her name was Eunice. And we know further that he had a Jewish grandmother who was a Christian as well by the name of Lois. Now, he had a father who was Greek, uh, that is, a Gentile. And it wasn't unusual in the ancient world for Jews who moved out of the Holy Land or out of Israel to intermarry with Gentiles. And it wasn't unusual for a woman to marry a Greek or a Gentile uh, who was Jewish, uh, the woman being Jewish, especially these marriages would occur into, you know, more prominent and significant kind of families. We're told further that Timothy was well spoken of by the Christians, not only in his hometown of Lystra, but also in the surrounding city of Iconium. So he has a very good reputation as a Christian among Christians, not only in his own hometown, but also uh, in the surrounding towns as well. All of this, verse 3, caused Paul to desire that Timothy would accompany him and Silas on the, the remainder of their second missionary journey. Now, remember, Paul had chosen Silas in order to replace Barnabas on the second missionary journey, but he had not appointed anyone to replace John Mark, who was not uh, a part of his team any longer. He begins his second missionary journey without having made that replacement, and here is God's provision. And so he needs help. Uh, There needs to be somebody who's going to take care of kind of the physical needs that are very real in a missionary journey like this or a trip like this. And so he extends the invitation uh, to Timothy to join him on this missionary journey, and clearly Timothy accepted that invitation because uh, Paul then had him circumcised. And uh, obviously, Uh, Timothy had never been circumcised, and this was important to Paul uh, in Jewish law, uh, and even to this day, a child takes the religion of its mother. And so Timothy should have been circumcised and raised as a Jew, according to the worldview of the Jew. But in the Greek law, the law of his father, the father dominates in the home and dominates in spiritual issues. And the Greeks worshipped the beauty of the human body. I mean, it meant much about um, the gods that the Greek worshipped was just an extension of their reverence for the human body and how highly they esteemed it. To the Greek, this Jewish rite of circumcision was abhorrent to them. It was uncivilized to them. This was something, this was barbarism. This was a mutilation of perfection in the human, uh, human body. Now, of course, 
this raises the question for us as to why Paul would have Timothy be circumcised when just earlier, a chapter earlier, when false teachers come from Jerusalem into Antioch and they begin to teach that in order for Gentiles to be saved, they need to be uh, circumcised and also keep the law of Moses. And when Paul and Barnabas heard that, Paul specifically, he got right up in their face and that became a, a very large contention, one that ended up being solved uh, by the leaders in Jerusalem. So why in the world is he so touchy related to uh, all of that earlier? And then here he, he takes and uh, has uh, uh, Timothy circumcised and, uh, before he would join him on the journey. And the reason it's given to us in verse 3, and it's because Timothy was half Jewish and half Gentile. And Paul thought that because of their missionary journeys, Paul did the same thing in every city he ever went to. When he came, you got to remember, he's walking into cities, there's not a single Christian in the city, not one. Where do you start? I mean, you come, you imagine you come into Modesto, where do you start? As you come as a Christian, there's not one Christian, say, in the city. And Paul's methodology, he didn't keep that as like, okay, in every city he's trying to figure it out in a different way. He always did it the same way. He would find the Jewish synagogue, and he would begin by preaching the gospel there, and then he would begin to branch out into the community beyond that. And Paul knew that if he brought Timothy into that Jewish synagogue with him, and they knew his reputation as having a Gentile father and being uncircumcised as a result of it in these surrounding cities, that as Paul would begin to preach to them the gospel of Jesus Christ and, uh, and, and so forth, that these Jewish listeners wouldn't have taken a single thing seriously that Paul said or Silas said or Timothy said. After all, if they didn't have enough concern uh, to, you know, uh, take the mark of circumcision, then why would we, you know, give them a hearing related to anything? And Paul could anticipate where the entire rest of the missionary journey would be all about whether Timothy was circumcised or not rather than what it was intended to be, and that was to share the gospel of salvation with people. And so Timothy was circumcised, and the uh, stumbling block before the Jews was removed. Now, sometimes Paul is criticized for doing this, but I think it's important to realize that it wasn't done uh, as a means of Timothy being saved. It wasn't an issue of salvation or even of his righteous standing before God. It had nothing to do with that in Paul's mind nor in Timothy's mind. It was simply in keeping with Paul's perspective in terms of reaching people with the gospel. And he communicated that when he wrote his first letter to the church at Corinth in chapter 9, and he declared there, to the weak I have become weak, that I, uh, to the weak I become as weak that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. Any sacrifice necessary in order for the sake of the gospel and that people might be saved, Paul was willing to make that sacrifice himself and also demand it of those who traveled uh, and served with him. Now, in verse 4, Timothy went uh, then with Paul and Silas uh, uh, and began and would follow with him for the remainder of the second missionary journey. 
And notice in verses 4 and 5 that in each city that they came into, they encouraged each of the local congregations uh, with a recent ruling from the Jerusalem Council, and that is Jews and Gentiles are each saved the same way, and they are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And when these churches, these groups of Christians heard this, their faith was strengthened and they increased in uh, number daily, we're told in verse 5. Now, I want to take a moment this morning to consider what Timothy was ultimately to become to Paul. I do think, in a, and I do a lot of reading, I do think that uh, the Apostle Paul is greatly misunderstood in many ways, but in one particular way. Uh, sometimes he is very often thought of as kind of this relentless gospel machine, like a cyborg, some kind of artificial being, you know, so forth. And he's viewed very often as being very, very strong, very independent, very brilliant, uh, massively motivated, massively dedicated in uh, both principles and, and in whatever task uh, he gave himself to. But some people have the idea that relationally uh, he was a loner, uh, that in terms of relationships he was uh, to, uh, at the very least, uh, very much unneedy. And the idea that he didn't really need friends and that if he had them, uh, then they must be uh, uh, formal in nature, that he was largely emotionally detached on a personal level. And that he just did his thing, and you could, if you could keep up with him, fine, but if you couldn't, then he couldn't be bothered with that, or he wouldn't emotionally or personally invest in you. I am a rock. I am an island. And a rock feels no pain. And an island never cries. As the troubadours, that was not their name from the 1960s saying, this is the Apostle Paul, emotionally, relationally. And of course, none of that is true. For example, in the book of Romans, it closes with its final chapters virtually filled with names that Paul had both served with and had become friends of his as a result, that he wanted to be greeted on his behalf. He liked people. He liked being around people. He liked, to be around, he liked people being around him. And I think that it is Timothy who almost single-handedly blows up any kind of view of Paul like this. Because Timothy will not only become Paul and Silas's assistant, but he will ultimately become the protege of Paul. He will become also a deeply valued co-laborer in God's work, but he will also become a very treasured friend of the Apostle Paul. And the relationship began here in Lystra between Paul and Timothy, and that relationship would continue unbroken until the very day of Paul's death. And I think one of the most interesting observations concerning people in life is that people who develop close relationships in their life, it's interesting how different people can be. They say that opposites attract, and certainly it's true. It's on display 
uh, all over the place in marriages, in friendships, and, and so forth. And they, they really, really do. But to look at two incredibly different people and then somehow something within them, they hit it off. There's some mutual bond that is there where you think, I never thought he or she would be the friend of him or her, and yet they are best friends. They are virtually inseparable. And you wonder how the friendship can survive, let alone thrive. And with Paul and Timothy, in some ways you couldn't have two more different men. I mean, they were absolute opposites in terms of temperament and in terms of personality. Timothy was somewhat timid. Paul was very, very bold. Timothy was given to fear much more easily than uh, Paul was. And he would look at a particular situation, and the first thing that would occur to his mind is why it wouldn't work or what's going to go wrong here. Paul would look at the same uh, situation, and he could think only of the possibilities. Timothy was somewhat emotional, while Paul, with Paul it was his head that led him for the most part, not his heart, not in a carnal sense or a natural sense. Timothy could be easily discouraged and intimidated. Paul was not at all. Timothy could be somewhat dependent. Paul was virtually completely independent. Timothy's fragile health would slow him down at times, and Paul just seemed to plow through uh, physical issues in his life, no matter how great they were. And yet, despite all of these differences, Paul loved Timothy, and he trusted Timothy, and vice versa. And I think it's important never to view the Apostle Paul as someone who, you know, just kind of did his own thing and couldn't get along with other people, and he certainly couldn't get along with people who were very different from himself. In other, way, in other ways, in very, very different ways, they were very much alike. Kindred spirit for the Lord, like-minded love for people, a love for the kingdom of God, a love for the citizens of that kingdom. There's an English publication offered a prize for the best definition of a friend some years ago. And among the thousands of answers that they received as a definition of that were the following. Uh, one definition was one who multiplies joys and divides grief. The second one was this, one who understands our silence. I think that's very good in a friend. But then there was the definition that won the prize, and here it is. A friend, the one who comes in when the whole world has gone out. One who comes in when the whole world has gone out. And that is what Timothy would become to the Apostle Paul. And somehow it blesses my heart to know that it's revealed in Scripture that Timothy, that Paul had that kind of a friend somewhere in his life. Such a dear friend is Timothy. Well, I don't want to leave this account without giving some attention to the backstory of all that we find here in chapter 16, because the relationship between Paul and Timothy, it did not begin in Acts chapter 16, but rather in Acts chapter 14. And this 
chapter 16 was not Paul's first visit to Lystra. He had also come to it during his first missionary journey. And you might remember the fireworks of that particular event as he comes into the city. There is a man who is lame, and God uses him to heal the lame man. The uh, explosiveness of what uh, God does through Paul and the healing of this man, it just reverberates through the entire city. It's on everybody's lips. It just moved like, uh, like an echo through the city. And word gets finally to the… Uh, and, and they've come to the conclusion that, that uh, Hermes, in the person of Paul, has visited them, and that Barnabas is none other than Zeus, that the Greek gods have now come into the city and visit. Word gets now to the priests that are there in the temple of Zeus in Lystra, and they begin to grab a couple of oxen and some garlands to bring them to where Paul and Barnabas are, where Zeus and Hermes or Mercury is, in order to offer a sacrifice to them. They're speaking in a language that Paul and Barnabas don't understand. And by the time they begin to pick up what it is that's happening, Paul and Barnabas, with great effort, convince the crowd and the priests that they are mere human beings like anybody else and that they shouldn't give themselves to the worship of Zeus and Hermes and these different things, but they ought to worship the God who is the God of creation, the creator of their bodies and so forth, and then turn them to the true and the living God. And so was this dramatic entrance to the city. Now, sometimes later, a group of Jews who had rejected the gospel earlier in Paul's first missionary journey with Barnabas, they, they had rejected the gospel in Antioch of Pisidia, also at Iconium, and they did so out of jealousy, you remember, because here is Paul preaching, and the crowds that he's getting of both Jews and Gentiles dwarf the crowds that are going to the local synagogue. They become jealous of him and then they bring in the magistrates, and they get some kind of an official ruling in order to expel Paul and Barnabas uh, from the region. And so Paul and Barnabas forcefully expelled. They then came to Lystra on their first missionary journey in order to uh, preach there. But this crowd that had opposed them in the former cities now came to Lystra to oppose and persecute Paul and Barnabas there as well. And it wasn't long before they were very successful in stirring up this very, very a superstitious multitude of, of Lystra. They stirred him up against Paul, and the ultimate result was a crowd formed, and they proceeded to stone Paul. They supposed him to be dead as they dragged him out of the city to the edge of the city, the city limits, and they left his body outside of the city. Their intention was that he was dead. They thought that he was dead, and they left them there in a heap. Now, it isn't hard to imagine, and we don't need to imagine, because back in chapter 14, we're told specifically what the Christians did in light of all that happened to Paul, and we're told that they then encircled the body. Now, it is a, you, you think about how after that murderous crowd had departed and returned then back into the city of Lystra, there are all of the disciples looking down on the body of the Apostle Paul. It's like he's been in a train wreck. It's been like he's been in a car wreck. 
I mean, the body is contorted, and, and how does it, that limb move over in this direction and that one swollen with the stoning and all of that? And here they begin the day just like any other day. Nobody knows that Paul's going to be stoned to death or an attempt to be made upon his life, and yet in the course of the day, that's exactly what happened. And here they see him, and in their minds, as he lays there, they are convinced that he's dead as well. And as all of the emotion hits them, and then not merely the emotion, but what hits them as Christians to realize here is the Apostle Paul dead, stoned to death in Lystra. How are we going to tell them in Antioch and all that would be going on in, inside of them as they stood over the body encircling it? And then think about the shock and the confusion that they must have felt as as they, again, processing the sense of loss, and then the whore, the, it, the contortion of, of his body, there it is broken, and it's wounded, and it's, and it's bloodied. And then you think about what emotion they might have experienced when after a time the body moves, and then it moves again, and then it moves again, and somehow that body gets on its hands and knees, and somehow the Apostle Paul rises to his feet, and then he walks right back into the city of Lystra. The next day when Paul and Barnabas departed from Lystra for the city of Derbe, it looked like their ministry in Lystra had been a complete disaster, that it had amounted to nothing. But it had accomplished something. And when Paul returned to Lystra here now, five years later, there were, among others, a grandmother by the name of Lois, a mother by the name of Eunice in one family, and then a son and grandson in the form of Timothy himself. And it would appear that all of them had become Christians as a result of Paul's earlier ministry there. And many people believe that Paul intimates as much when he wrote of Timothy in his first letter to the church at Corinth, and he describes Timothy there as my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, communicating that, yes, as, as another father had given uh, Timothy physical life, so Paul had been involved in Timothy's spiritual birth. In the same vein, Paul would write to Timothy himself in one of the two pastoral epistles that bear his name. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, Paul writes to Timothy, a true son in the faith. Some believe that Timothy was probably about 18 years old when all of this happened in the book of Acts chapter 16 that would still allow him to be a young enough man so that when Paul writes to him and says 12 years later, let no one despise your youth, uh, that Timothy would have been 30 years old by then and despising someone that age in that culture, he would have still been considered a very young man to be speaking about spiritual uh, things. Well, if he was 18, as the events occurred here in chapter 16, then he would have been about 13 years old when he witnessed the stoning of Paul 
and was maybe among that group of Christians who followed that dragging of the body out to the edge of the city, and then certainly among those who saw him when he later returned to the city, bloodied and wounded. And later what Paul would indicate as much when he wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3 to Timothy, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. And of course, with all that Paul was going through at the time of his stoning, I mean, you think about how overwhelming, how disorienting something like that might be. You're just trying to get a grip on your own life to encourage the saints and so forth. Here's the circumstances he's in the middle of, the danger he still faces from this mob there within Lystra. And I think he could have hardly been aware of the fact that of all these events that were going on, all of them were being very, very carefully watched by Timothy and that it was having a very deep effect upon him to watch this man continue his Christian life and his Christian ministry, though covered from head to toe with wounds. And Paul would later write of the wounds that he received as a, as a result of being a minister of the gospel and fulfilling God's call upon his life. Wounds received in Lystra and elsewhere, Galatians chapter 6, verse 17, from now on let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Now, wounds and the scars that ultimately bear witness to those wounds, I think they're very powerful things, and I suspect that you do as well. I find that when I see a wound or a scar on another person that I come into contact with, it's impossible for me to ignore. We tell our kids if, as they're growing up and they want to stare at something, don't stare, don't stare. So we don't stare, but we notice. We notice. And scars and wounds are not only impressionable. Upon a 13-year-old boy, but it's impressionable upon all of us. Whenever I see a scar on someone's face or their body, I'm immediately curious about it. Some great cut and I've seen it more than once, that goes from the corner of a person's mouth to their very uh, ear, some uh, scar that's the result of it, some scar on the abdomen, some scar on the leg, some scar on the arm. And whenever I see some great, uh, you know, graphic kind of scar, I wonder to myself, how did that happen? What's the story behind that great wound in their life? What's the story behind that scar? When did it happen in their life? What did they feel when it happened? How painful must that have been? And I think that really had to hurt. How did they survive so great a wound? How did they heal from so great 
a wound? How hard was it to go through the healing process? What emotion did they feel during that process? What fears did they face? What courage did they experience? How much courage did it take them to get through and onto the other side of the wound and ultimately the scar? And of course, the greater the wound, the greater the scar, the greater the curiosity, and the greater the impact that it has upon us. And I think we sometimes, as we ask ourselves such questions concerning people's wounds and their scars, we ask those questions in our minds or out loud, not out of some kind of a morbid curiosity, but for instruction, for our learning. If I should ever have a scar, if I should ever be cut from the base of my ear to the corner of my mouth, what can I expect? If I ever experience a wound like that on my knee or on my abdomen or wherever it might be, what can I expect? And the desire is, what can I learn from this person for the day that it might possibly happen to me? I think of Christian men and women in my own childhood whose scars made an immense impact upon my life, though I never told them so at the time, and though they could have never known how closely I was watching them and how desperately I was watching them for hope, for an example, for what it was in instruction in the difficulties that I was facing in my own life as a young person. And, and though as they would look at my lives through those years, those early years, my teenage years watching them, and they would look at the path that I would later take away from the Lord and difference related to the Lord for years and years, it looked like anything they poured into my life had amounted to nothing. But God never let me forget any of it. He kept all of it alive in my heart. And it had a deep impact on me. I think of a man named John. And he was my Sunday school teacher when I was in junior high school. We didn't call him John. We called him Mr. So-and-so. But I'm not going to tell you his last name for his own privacy. And that little group of junior high students that he taught Sunday in and Sunday out never amounted to more than five, four or five students on on any given Sunday. And he had two daughters, and one of whom, I forget whether she was born this way or it was removed due to cancer, but the one daughter had just uh, one leg and uh, that was uh, full and whole. She was missing her leg on one side uh, right below her knee. And I watched this man, not only in my classroom, but I watched how he loved and he cared for that daughter, compensating for whatever she might lack. And then sometime later, I came to church as a young boy, and there were whisperings going on in the church, and I came to find out that his wife had left him, and not for another man but for a woman. And remember, this was a much more innocent time in the United States of America. I could hardly know as a 13-year-old that such a thing happened or that such a thing, I mean, it, it, it broke my mind to even try to understand it. 
And I watched him, and I watched him, and I watched him, and I watched him, and I would wonder at how great a wound this must have been to him on top of everything else that he was facing in life and going through. And I watched him continue to walk with the Lord and to serve the Lord through all of it. And he never knew how closely I was watching him and the impact that it had upon me, a boy about Timothy's age, when he witnessed Paul's stoning. I think about a woman named Dorothy who was instrumental in bringing my mother to the Lord and as a result bringing us as her children into church. She never missed an opportunity to share something about the Lord. You could not talk with her about anything except she would talk with you about that something but always redirect the conversation to the Lord. And she was always looking to pour something of God into our lives. She surely saw how desperately and badly we needed it. And so Dorothy was that kind of, of a lady, and I remember that she, she's in heaven now, but she loved Jay Vernon McGee. And she always knew he came on at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and she would sit down for that half hour and listen to that Through the Bible program and where J. Vernon McGee would go from Genesis to Revelation in that five-year period, and she loved the ministry of J. Vernon McGee. And my mother and Dorothy, they came into contact with one another out of a condition they had in common, and that condition was mental illness. And most of the time... I remember seeing Dorothy when she was perfectly well and as carefree as the most carefree person in the world. But then I remember seasons in her life when she really struggled, when her body and her mind would get out of whack and her lithium could no longer keep her in a safe place, and I would watch her shift from one foot to the other for hours, standing in the same place, smoking one cigarette after another, just struggling to get through the moment, much less the day. And then finally, after some number of days or weeks, she would emerge from that place into something better. But I think with the knowledge that, as was the case with my mother, that unless the Lord healed her, this cycle would be her portion until the day she went to heaven. And so it was for her. And yet through all of it, she continued to walk with the Lord who was her everything, not knowing how closely I as a teenage boy watched her and the fact that her life and her struggles and her wounds and her scars were impacting me in a way that couldn't be impacted by 10,000 sermons, and it impacts me to this very day. And yet, I watch today many of you in your trials, and I witness your wounds, and I witness your scars, and I hear your stories, and I know your stories of an unwanted divorce, a single parent doing your best to raise your children in the Lord the various diseases and the various illnesses, walking and continuing through the loss of 
a husband or a wife or a child or a mother or a father and so forth. Not all scars in life are physical, are they? I would contend that the worst of scars in life are not physical at all, but that the most painful of them are emotional and they're mental. And while you are just trying to survive, you're just trying to get by this morning, you have no idea how many people are watching you in the middle of your situation, desperately in need of hope in their situations, and they're being inspired by you. You say, no, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. No, believe it. Believe it and be encouraged by it. God will never allow your wounds and scars to go to waste. He will never allow it. May I say one final thing to you? By the grace of God, just keep moving forward. Through all of the wounding, through all of the scars, through all of the marks, just keep moving forward. And don't quit before the glory of your scars are revealed. And that may not happen until you are in heaven one day. Paul would leave Lystra one day following his, the day following his stoning, and in obedience to God's call upon his life, he then moved on to the city of Derby. And in the city of Derby, many disciples would come to the Lord, the Bible tells us. The season in your life is not a fruitless one, though it may feel like it. And it will not be the death of you, though it may feel like it. The Christian life is one that is filled with wounds and scars. They're simply unavoidable because it is impossible to become like Christ without being wounded and scarred in this life and in this world. And they can't be avoided. Try as we might to avoid them. But God is working them together for good in a way that most often we never realize and we will never realize in this life. You steady on. You steady on. Some Timothy is watching. Know that. It's not a waste. And the Holy Spirit is using you to inspire them in a way that they will never forget. Let's stand together and pray. Father, I pray and we pray this morning, just in the fullness of your presence here this morning, Your word tells us that everything is open and naked before you with whom we have to do. You see every need, every scar, every wound, Lord. And we pray that you would use this time in your word this morning to bring hope and to bring inspiration, to bring perspective, Lord, to bring courage and to bring strength to each man and woman that is facing 
the kind of situations that they don't know how they're going to make it from one day to the next and view this season in their life as something that is lost and wasted when you know better. And we pray, Lord, that you would use your word as a great balm upon their heart, upon their mind, upon their lives, and upon their spirit today. Bless them, Lord. Encourage them, Lord, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you stand here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, you need to know that God loves you.